The 1970s had been, we all know, a tough decade for America. In the early 80s, inflation was rampant, trust in government was low, and America's global prestige in the face of humiliation, such as those dealt out by Iranian hostage takers to the Carter administration, was even lower. Even worse, the Soviet Union appeared to have achieved the upper hand across a range of different competitions, including with respect to its military. The conventional wisdom among foreign policy elites in both parties was that the USSR was a fact of life, here to stay, and it needed to be dealt with on its own terms. Ronald Reagan disagreed. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining the School of War. Joined today by William Inboden. He is the executive director and William Powers Jr. Chair at the Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. He's also associate professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs there and a number of other impressive titles and affiliations and the most important of which, and relevant to today's discussion, he is the author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. Will, thanks so much for joining. Aaron, it's great to be with you. Thank you. So I thought I would start, sort of start at the start, even start before the start, as you kind of do in the book, which, which is really excellent, by the way. And I, 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 commend, I commend it to our, our listeners who are, who are curious about Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, which is a natural thing that everyone should be curious about. But talk a bit about the um, the climate, the, the the ideology of detente into which Reagan kind of emerges and begins his presidency. What is the what is the ethic and the sort of governing mindset of American foreign policy, specifically with regard to the Soviet Union, where Reagan sort of begins? Sure, sure, yeah, it's a great question, Aaron. Because you know when Reagan takes office in January of 1981, he's the United States is coming out of a very difficult decade of the 1970s. We can talk some more about the many challenges there, but also Reagan is in some ways inheriting the detente strategic framework, which had really governed U.S. relations with the Soviet Union across the previous three administrations: Nixon and Ford and Jimmy Carter. So this had been a, a essentially a bipartisan consensus. And detente had, when it was first developed by Nixon and Kissinger in the late 60s, as the United States is mired in Vietnam and you know, seen the limits of its Cold War policies, it made some sense. The, the premise of detente was the Cold War is so terrifying and so costly for both the United States and Soviet Union. We're both find ourselves in these you know, bloody, bloody commitments and wars around the world, and we're, and we're terrified of nuclear war. Are there ways that we can reduce tensions and coexist with each other? So detente is not necessarily predicated on, you know, complete surrender, just ending the Cold War, but rather it's about reducing tensions and looking farther. Some ways that we can, you know, have temporary cooperation with each other and reduce tensions and coexist. And the assumption was the Soviet Union is not going away. It's a permanent part of the geopolitical landscape. And so for Nixon and Kissinger that, and then continuing on with Ford and Carter includes doing some arms control agreements with the Soviets, 
includes the United States reducing its defense budget, especially as we're going through a you know, decade-long economic uh, recession, dialing back our support for anti-communist activities around the world, the, and, and also reducing our criticism of the Soviets on human rights grounds, you know, not doing as much for, say, the plight of Jewish refusing exit to the Soviet Union being denied exit to, the, exit to Israel. The problem, and, and detente works for a little bit of a time, it does reduce tensions somewhat, but the problem as Reagan starts pointing out early on, you know, this is why he runs for president in 1976, challenging Ford for the Republican nomination based almost exclusively on foreign policy. The problem with the detente was the United States was honoring our side of the bargain of dialing back our confrontation with the Soviet Union and our defense budget, and the Soviets were not honoring theirs. They see detente as a chance to really exploit American weakness. So as uh, none other than Jimmy Carter's uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Harold Brown, put it, when we're building up our defense, the Soviets are building theirs. Then when we decide through detente to start reducing our defense and stop building, the Soviets keep building. And so over the projected in the 1970s, so the Soviets are expanding their nuclear arsenal, expanding their conventional army, and expanding their support for communist revolutions around the world. And this is why you see a series of developing countries, you know, Ethiopia, Angola, Cambodia, then Nicaragua, of course, and a number of others falling to communist communist insurgencies. And so it really looks like the Soviet Union is on the march. And so Reagan had this pithy line about detente. He said that, you know, detente is what a farmer has with his thank, uh, with his turkey until Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> and, and so he had been a critic of this for several years. And once he is elected in 1980 and takes office in 1981, sees it as his his opportunity to come up with a new framework. Um, so I want to I want to ask you about that framework and, and ask you about Reagan. But the way you just framed your answer makes me want to ask a question about the Soviets, uh, you know, under under someone like Brezhnev. I guess one form of the question would be, is, is Reagan right? Uh, the detente is the agreement between a farmer and, and the turkey until um, Thanksgiving Day from their point of view. In other words, if the sort of Nixonian, Kissingerian vision of detente is premised on the notion that you know essentially these two great powers will will compete and cooperate kind of in the long run and that the that will be the long run is ongoing competition and cooperation between great powers is the soviet vision not that but rather sort of one of one of victory one of one of victory for communism is it in between what how do the soviets look at all this yeah so the we now know from declassified and released soviet documents that came out after the cold war and i'm not a russian speaker reader but many of them had translated into, into english that the, there was a clear strategy on the part of the soviet leadership to use detente for their own advantages and to use it to press you know press their advances around the world so a, a kgb leader looking back in the 1970s said this, I think in the early 80s, the world was going our way, right? You know, we were we were increasing our own military power at home and our control over our Warsaw Pact satellites, but also, you know, we were spreading these revolutions in, you know, more growing number of communist regimes around the world. Now, let me clear, the Soviet Union did not want a hot war with the United States. They knew that that would be catastrophic. They wanted to win without fighting. That was their own goal is how much they can use, you know, their military power, their revolutionary power, to increase their, you know, to support communist regimes around the world, to increase their their geopolitical strength, and you know, corner and reduce the United States correspondingly. So their goal was to win without fighting, and they they had a very clear strategy of pressing their advantage as far as they could with with, with detente. So when Reagan took office, somewhere in the in the probably the nineteen eighty one to eighty three window, the Soviet Union we now know reached the apex of its military strength. I mean, that's when they were the most formidable military power in the world. Now they also had plenty of internal vulnerabilities, which Reagan saw, and we can talk more about that. But you know, I do think the Cold War's most dangerous moment, especially for the United States 
is the early 1980s, certainly the most dangerous since the Cuban Missile Crisis two decades earlier. And of course, you know, certainly folks who, who are on the on, on the right, you know, we look back on Reagan's presidency and we, we think of the end of the Cold War and the results and the thing has takes on a bit of a retrospective rosy hue. But as you as you document in the book, Reagan, despite winning the presidency, is is a kind of a certainly a dissident within elite debate about the Soviet Union in, in the early days. Talk a bit about the consensus way an extension of the earlier question, but but beyond the sort of consensus of detente as an American strategy, what is the American consensus about the Soviet Union and its potential and its future? Yeah, sure. So within political terms, in the when Reagan takes office in the early 1980s, we can also almost say there's you know really three camps. There is first the Democratic Party, which has been led by Jimmy Carter, also Ted Kennedy, very prominent there which is primarily taking a pretty dovish approach to the Soviet Union. There are a few hawkish Democrats who dissent from that, such as Scoop Jackson, the Democratic senator from Washington State, who's a close friend of Reagan's. But by and large, you've got the Democratic camp. Then you've got a very split Republican Party where you have the Nixon-Ford-Kissinger camp, which also takes the detente line, you know, uh, looking more for cooperation and reduced tensions with, this, with the Soviets. And then you've got the Reagan camp, which is really an insurgency. It's, you know, it's the conservative insurgency within the Republican Party, which rejects the premises of, of detente. And, and most expert opinion, most you know, foreign policy experts and scholars at the time assumed that the Soviet Union was strong and durable and stable and would be a permanent part of the geopolitical landscape. And so it was a competition that needed to be managed. And again, you know, they weren't saying the United States should surrender to the Soviets or anything, but the notion of uh, victory in the Cold War, especially a peaceful victory, the notion that Soviet Union might be brought to collapse was fantastical. I mean, was seemed uh, almost almost delusional. And Reagan was really one of the very few you know, prominent Americans or leaders in, in public life who believed that the Soviet Union was uniquely vulnerable. Yes, it was strong in a military sense, but also very weak economically and politically and ideologically. And so his strategy was you know, deterring them in their points of strength and exploiting them in their areas of weakness. And in hindsight, we can see that that strategy was correct and it worked, but it was a profound challenge to the conventional wisdom of the time, to, to expert opinion, and even most of the political consensus in, in, the, in, the, in the two parties. And so that's why he was you know, really vilified and as, a, as a warmonger or seen as, seen as delusional and, and, and dangerous by, by so, much, so much expert opinion. So it took real political courage, I think, on his part to develop this new strategy to be much more confrontational toward, towards the Soviet Union. And in hindsight, we can see it worked, but at the time that was you know, far, far from conceded. And that's why I wrote the book the way I did, is reminding people that we didn't know how the story was gonna end. Right. What, what was the source or what were the sources, not only of Reagan's substantive objections to the consensus and his view of communism, but of his confidence in that view, his willingness to, to, to go as far as he did? Yeah. So much of this comes down to Reagan is much more of a thinker, a student of ideas than I think people had fully appreciated. And so his theory of the case of the Cold War, and we can you know, see him thinking this as early as the early 1960s. These are some ideas he'd been developing for 20 years. His theory of the case is that the Cold War was fundamentally a battle of ideas between the free world and Soviet communism, you know, between democratic capitalism and a command economy and tyranny. So it's fundamentally a battle of ideas that happens to be laid on top of a great power competition. And every previous president had saw the Cold War as primarily a great power competition that happens to be a battle of ideas or happens to have an ideological component. And so because Reagan framed it that way, 
he believed very strongly that American ideas were the winning ideas and that Soviet communism as an idea was a losing idea that was really destined to, to fail eventually, but it needed pressure. And so as he looked at, you know, he'd been speaking out on this quite a bit in the 1970s, as he looked at the Soviet Union's oppression of its own people, you know, tormenting dissident Christians, dissident Jews, polit political dissidents, as he looked at the Soviet Union's, you know, tyrannical control of its satellites in the Warsaw Pact in, in Eastern Europe, you know, exemplified, of course, by the Berlin Wall. To him, that just seemed so unnatural, almost. It's such a violation of human dignity and human liberty that it, that it could not be sustained, that it demands so much power and coercion to be sustained. But of course, because of his commitment to free markets and free enterprise, he also believes that, you know, communist economic systems just don't work over time. They can't be sustained by, by being so inefficient and so exploitive. And so because he believed in the falsity of the idea of Soviet communism, he believed that it was vulnerable and that if you press against those vulnerabilities through, you know, full spectrum of, of Cold War, Cold War policies that he, that he developed, that eventually the system could crack apart. And he would often say, look, I think if we get them, they liked the arms race better when they were the only ones running it. If we can start a new arms race, we can show them that we can outbuild them, that we can outsmart them. If we support voices for freedom behind the Iron Curtain, we'll put internal pressure on them. So he believes that with more pressure, these bad ideas could be defeated and that the political system sustained those bad ideas could, could be cracked apart. Talk a bit, if you would, about the role that faith and religion played for Reagan in his, in his foreign policy thinking. I mean, certainly... You correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems that at the time, certainly the perception among his critics was that it played an enormous role and certainly seems to have played some role. And of course, for the critics, it's a very bad thing. Um, you have a sort of, you know, lunatic driven by, you know, millenary envisions taking us to, to the brink of nuclear annihilation. What's, you know, help us untangle the, the truth of the matter. Yeah. Yeah. This is where Reagan, I think it's safe to say, is a deeply devout Christian. And that, that comes out in his... His diaries, his, his private letters, you know, this is not just political posturing when he would use religious language in public. Obviously, he's idiosyncratic about it in some ways, you know, so he was, you know, famously indifferent churchgoer, certainly during his time in office. He, of course, you know, allowed the first lady to indulge her penchant for astrology for a time too, which is usually not aligned with, you know, traditional Christian teaching, right? So, but in terms of his, his personal faith, it's very clear and, and devout. And I give a number of examples of this in the book. But how it connects to his foreign policy is very interesting. He believed that one of the Soviet Union's greatest vulnerabilities was its official atheism. He thought that the way that communist systems, you know, try to restrict or extinguish all religious belief was just so fundamentally alien to the human condition and to the, you know, the yearning for faith that so many, so many people have. And so, you know, he cared deeply about religious freedom and human rights of religious dissidents partly as a moral good, but partly also as his strategy, one of his, one element of his strategy to, to put pressure on the Soviet Union and to highlight, uh, highlight that. He would often say, look, the, the yearning for faith of so many people behind the Iron Curtain, that's what's eventually going to bring it down. You just cannot squelch that forever. But he also had a kind of a sense of, of destiny. He particularly talks about this after he survives the assassination attempt in March of 81, where he, said, he writes in his diary, you know, he comes very close to dying. We know now that he came really with, you know, if the, if the bullet had been just a couple of millimeters, you know, it, it, you know, in one direction or another, it, it would have killed him. And if the, you know, the trauma surgeons at George Washington Hospital had not acted as quickly as they did, he, you know, he was a few minutes away from dying. 
So Reagan writes in his diary, he said, I think God has spared me for a purpose. I think he saved my life for a purpose. And that, and that is to, to end the threat of nuclear war and, and bring the Cold War to an end. And so that sense of divine destiny gives him, you know, the confidence to weather the criticism that he, that he faces to, you know, both to you know, keep applying the pressure of the Soviet Union, but also when it comes time to do outreach to Gorbachev, where he takes some criticism from the right to do that as well. And then, of course, this is a key to the deep connection he forges with Pope John Paul II, who becomes, you know, one of his key partners in 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 winning the Cold War. The Pope himself survives an assassination attempt just two months after Reagan in May of '81. At a, you know, the details are murky, but it seems to be that the KGB was likely behind the, the assassination attempt on the Pope. So, you know, the Soviets were terrified of the Pope because, as the first Polish Pope, the spiritual power that he wields for, you know, a billion Catholics around the world, many of whom are living behind the Iron Curtain. And so whether it's, you know, Reagan's support for Jewish dissidents, such as Natan Sharansky, which he's very committed to um, helping get him freed from the, from the gulag or, or, you know, Soviet Christians or the solidarity movement and the Polish, you know, persecuted Polish Catholic church for him, supporting religious believers fighting against communism is a very direct outgrowth of his own personal faith and his sense of the cold war is almost this, this religious war. The counterfactual of American foreign policy in the 80s under President George H.W. Bush, as opposed to President Ronald Reagan, is kind of a fascinating one to consider. No, I mean, my 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 impression of, of Bush Sr. is that his foreign policy instincts are much closer to Nixon's than, than to Reagan's. I, I should put this in the form of a question. I mean, if, if the assassin's bullet had actually found its mark, where, do, where, does, where, where do you think Bush would have taken things? Yeah, it's a really interesting counterfactual. And here's, and I'll, I'll answer it directly, but I want to give some background on just the Bush-Reagan relationship itself, which sure. is really fascinating. And there's, you know, a number of critical judges. Obviously, of course, as you said, if, you know, Reagan had died from the assassination, Bush became president, that's one. But no, there's even during the 1980 primary, Bush was Reagan's main yeah. rival and comes quite close early on to, you know, to winning in New Hampshire and and getting, getting the nomination. Of course, Reagan himself gets it. But they were fierce rivals during during the primary. They had, you know, different visions of the Cold War. You know, Bush as an alum of the Nixon Ford administrations was again largely more of that conventional Republican detente camp. And so when Reagan asked Bush to be his running mate, it was done at the time largely for political expediency. Is this a way that we, we can unite the conservative and moderate factions of the Republican Party? And and it works as a matter of politics, right? And they go on it and win the election. But the big question is going to be, will Bush now be a good partner for Reagan as vice president? And here I do want to give Bush quite a bit of credit. He always knew that he was vice president and not president, you know, even though. So he was very, I think, conscientious about setting aside his own presidential ambitions and serving Reagan faithfully, including when Bush might disagree with some of, some of Reagan's, Reagan's policies. And so I I certainly grew in my admiration for Vice President Bush in the role of the vice presidency. I think he showed tremendous character there when he goes to Chernyenko's funeral in March of 85 and Bush Schultz have a you know long meeting with Gorbachev. And you know, Bush writes Reagan a pretty thoughtful cable afterwards saying, this Gorbachev guy might be the reformer we've been looking for. And I think, you know, I think you ought to, you ought to give him a chance. However, you know, skipping forward by November 88, when Bush wins election as the new president, you know, Reagan's two terms are are over. 
And then Bush and Reagan have their famous final meeting with Gorbachev in December of 88 at Governor's Island in New York. It's a little awkward because Bush at that point thinks that Reagan has become too trusting of Gorbachev. Bush is still a little more wary of the Soviets. Bush seems to want to return to some more of the coexistence framework rather than Reagan's combination of pressure and, and outreach. And this is, you know, Bush is not acting inappropriately here. Now that he has the president-elect, he's, he's got the freedom to, to bring in his own team to set his own policies and so on. And, and during, you know, Bush's first year as president, they, they still are pretty aware of Gorbachev. But then, of course, you know, events take their own course where, you know, skip, skipping ahead here. And Bush realizes so many of the, the policies and strategies that Reagan had put in place over the previous eight years are really, really bearing fruit and cracking apart the, the Soviet edifice. So, but yeah, I think if Bush had become president earlier, or for that matter, if somehow Jimmy Carter had won re-election in 1980, mm-hmm. things would have turned out pretty differently. Yeah. Talk a bit about the, the core of the Reagan grand strategy, especially with respect to the to the Soviet Union. You just made reference to this combination of of, of pressure, but also outreach. I mean, what, what characterizes the, the, the Reagan approach? So, yeah, this is really key. You know, I can give it to you in, in just a sentence. It is a combination of relentless, full-spectrum pressure on the Soviet system and consistent outreach. I mentioned in passing earlier in our conversation how the Soviet goal had been to win the Cold War without fighting. That was also Reagan's goal, right? He does not want the Cold War to turn hot. He's you know desperate to avoid a nuclear war and global destruction. But he also doesn't want to just keep coexisting with this awful system, as he had seen throughout the 1970s, how that really set the United States back. And so because his theory of the case is it's this battle of ideas, and because he saw the Soviet Union as this unique, perverse combination of strong militarily, but weak in every other area, his pressure strategy, you know, embodied in peace through strength, is designed to bring that full spectrum of military and economic and ideological and political and you know even human rights pressure on the Soviet system. He, you know, I I put it this way: he's trying to drive three wedges through the Soviet system. He wants to, by his human rights support and his information warfare, he's trying to drive a wedge between the Russian people and the Kremlin. Right? He knows that the Russian people are resentful and frustrated and suffering under this this evil system, and so he wants to drive a further wedge between them and and their their rulers. Second, and and further isolate the Kremlin. Second, he wanted to drive a wedge between the the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. This is why he's so active in supporting again dissidents in, in East Germany and in Poland and in Romania and, and elsewhere, um, but also putting economic pressure on the on the Warsaw Pact so that the Soviet Union can't keep funding and subsidizing it. And then third, he wants to separate the Soviet system from the 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 rest of the world. He wants to really isolate it. This is why part of his rhetorical offensive of saying that it is a sad, bizarre chapter in human history, saying that it will end up on the ash heap of history, saying that it is an evil empire, saying that it... Um, you know, embodies embodies evil, evil in the world. These are not just cheap taunts. This is his effort to remind the world of what a, you know, bizarre, perverse, and, and wicked system this is. So that's part of all the pressure. And we can talk, you know, particularly on the, the defense strategy part and some of the details. But he also is very consistent from his first months in office in outreach to Soviet leaders. When he's uh, recovering from the assassination attempts, you know, two months into his presidency, he writes a long letter to, Gorb- uh, to Brezhnev saying, hey, you and I together can save the world from destruction, right? I mean, we don't have to descend into a nuclear war. Let's talk. Let's see if there's ways that we can negotiate a way out of this. And he continues to outreach to every 
you know, follow-on uh, Soviet leader to Andropov to Chernyenko. As he famously says, he's not getting many responses because they keep dying on me. And then finally, of course, <laughs> when, when Gorbachev comes along. So his outreach to them was designed to, one, reassure them the United States was not intending a nuclear first strike. The Soviets were terrified that they were, right? And that that, may, that makes it very precarious because um, if they misunderstand that, they might launch a counter-strike and then you know, then the world is over. But also tell them, look, I want to get to know you. I want to negotiate with you. Let's see if there's a way that we can reduce tensions between our countries. Now, it's a very artful dance because he's trying to outreach, reach out to them and reassure them. At the same time, he's trying to bring their system down, right? And and the, the Soviet leaders start to realize this. But Reagan understood that portion diplomacy are not opposites. They're not antitheses. They're complementary. And so he wanted to have a massive military buildup to have the most potent, advanced, capable military in the world to deter a Soviet attack, but also to strengthen diplomacy so that when he was sitting across the negotiating table from, from Gorbachev, Gorbachev wasn't just talking to, you know, Ronald Reagan, an individual American president, but he was looking at the, the full might and power of the United States behind him and was knowing that that might and power was poised to do great damage to him if he did not negotiate, right? And so it was, it was you know, speaking softly and carrying a very big stick to put it in Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt terms. So that, that's, the, so those two strands of the policy, the strategy, pressure and outreach, force and diplomacy, they're there throughout his, throughout his eight years. So that's the key to understanding the Reagan strategy. Your, your account of the strategy, both, both here and, and in the book itself, really brings to the fore this series of you know, this embrace of, of these obvious contradictions, right? So there's there's the force in diplomacy or you know pressure and outreach tension that you just described that and that plays out in so many different ways and relates to so many different things that are all contradictions, right? We're going to pursue arms control agreements on the one hand while engaging in a massive arms buildup on the other. We are going to emphasize the importance of human rights while supporting all manner of insurgencies, the care of which for human rights on a case-by-case -case basis is, we'll say, mixed. You know, was there, to, to what extent did Reagan reflect on these contradictions, either individually or in the aggregate? I mean, he seems to be, his policy seems to be defined by these series of contradictions, or is that just kind of to misunderstand what it's like to be president or, or what it's like to be Ronald Reagan? That is to say, in the flow of events, you're just, you're just kind of moving with your instincts. What, what do you think? Yeah. So I think when we look at the big picture, there is this vision of an end goal of a world at peace without Soviet communism and with the growth of democracy and human rights, even among right-wing authoritarians, right? So the end goal that Reagan wants is a free world. You know, he wants the growth of, of self-government, of free peoples, both within the, you know, the American bloc, if you will, and also within, within the Soviet bloc, with the eventual demise of the Soviet bloc. But he is flexible and adaptive in how you get there. And so even though he has these, you know, consistent principles of force and diplomacy, of pressure and outreach, he's constantly adjusting and tacking, sometimes, you know, emphasizing one a little bit more, sometimes emphasizing another a little more. Same with, you know, his, the Reagan doctrine and his support of anti-communist insurgents, you know, the, the, the Contras in Nicaragua, the UNITA rebels in Angola, most famously the Mujahideen, of course, in Afghanistan. You know, a number of those, you know, forces were certainly not models of, of human rights and good governance. But Reagan, you know, a quick digression here, but this is, you know, important to appreciate the, the bigger framework. Reagan is deeply shaped by the Second World War, okay? Mm -hmm. America's first big con fight against totalitarianism. Of course, at the time, is is not, not Nazi Germany and imperial Japan. 
And he knew that in the Second World War, you had to make tactical compromises at times. Sometimes you had to do you know, really ghastly things. You had to support Joseph Stalin in giving billions of dollars in aid to the Soviet Union for the greater goal of defeating the most urgent, you know, tier, the most urgent threat at the time, totalitarianism embodied by Nazi Germany. And so Reagan also, he sees the Cold War as analogous. He often draws comparisons between the Second World War and the Cold War. You know, the, you know first we were fighting against Nazi totalitarianism. Now our contest is with Soviet uh, totalitarianism. And so he's very willing to make some of these moral compromises along the way and some of these tactical adjustments with that bigger strategic goal in mind. And so even, you know, with his support for you know, right-wing anti-communist dictatorships in Asia and Latin America, especially, he assures them, you know, look, uh, you are America's partner. We appreciate that you are helping us keep communism at bay, whether, you know, in your own hemisphere, in your own country, as well as, you know, around the world. But, and here's the other part, he pretty consistently pressures most of them to, to ease up on their human rights abuses and then eventually to democratize. And this is why you see this incredible wave of democratizations in South Korea when the military government falls peacefully in 87, in the Philippines when Marcos goes out in 86, in Taiwan, in Chile, when, when Pinochet, the dictator, is removed peacefully, in Argentina, in Brazil, you know, even in El Salvador. And so with Reagan, the, the larger goal of supporting freedom in the world, I think, is pretty consistent, but he's willing to be um, you know, flexible in you know, sometimes providing short-term support for the greater goal of opposing communism, while still you know, using different, different means for these, these same ends of supporting the, the growth, growth of freedom. So it was, a, again, I think a more consistent strategy that I'd first appreciated and certainly a more consistent strategy than Reagan's critics will, will give him credit for. So we have a mutual friend who, when he heard I was recording this interview with you, insisted that I, quote, push you on Latin America. So let's let's focus in on, on Latin America for a bit. It's obviously related to to the points you were just making. You you labor in the the groves of 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 academy. I do not. I'm going to guess that the general consensus in terms of historians and, and analysts of the 80s is that the Reagan Latin American policy was not a success, that it was a series of ultimately very, very damaging and harmful contradictions in pursuit of a kind of trying to slay a, a chimera-like enemy of global communism that was a sort of overstated threat at best, certainly when it comes to that that South American theater. So I, mm. I, I take it that that's kind of the, the consensus view, and I take it that that is not at least precisely your view. What is mm. the what is the Reagan legacy in in South America? In so, Central America, it, let's we'll try to combine the combine yeah the. Every, everything everything south of the American border. Let's say so. It's yeah. a very good question, Aaron. It's a very important one. I do have, you know, as you already alluded, something of a contrarian take to most of the conventional academic wisdom on this. So let me set the strategic context here because this is really important for understanding Reagan's over, overall approach. First, remember that he was a two-term governor of California, a, a border border state, and so he was very committed to the Western Hemisphere overall. He was actually very mindful of America's, you know, often sorry history of interventions in Central and South America over the over the previous century. He would often talk in national security meetings of saying, "I'm, I'm, I don't want us to be seen as the Colossus of the North. I know that we have a, a history of interventions of paternalism there. We really want to partner rather with the peoples of the region and support them in." You know their aspirations for more autonomy and self-government and freedom. So, so he there's much more of a commitment to the hemisphere and a mindfulness of America's history there. So that's that's one of the first principles to lay out. By the way, this is embodied in November of '79 when he announces his presidential campaign. So this is his you know his debut speech, right, announcing his candidacy for president. 
most of the speeches about domestic policy, restoring the American economy and morale, so on and so forth. He says very little on foreign policy. He makes maybe one passing reference to the Soviet Union and the Cold War. The foreign policy section of his speech, instead, he devotes about three paragraphs just to North America and his real vision of, he calls a North American accord, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And so for him, he sees America's entire role in the world predicated on first building closer ties and partnership with our northern and southern neighbors. And of course, he sees Mexico as the gate, you know, the key gateway to the, the rest of Central and Central and South America. During the presidential transition, the first and only world leader he meets with is the president of Mexico. And Reagan actually travels to Mexico to see him. And so he's, he starts off, he sees, he sees, you know, his entire global strategy is predicated on let's first get things in order in our home hemisphere. Another key principle to keep in mind is uh, from where he sat uh, in January of 1981, he takes office, the communist threat in Central and South America was very real. You know, just two years before the communist revolution, Nicaragua had taken place, right? It's the first successful expansion of communism in the Western hemisphere since the Cuban revolution two decades earlier. Okay. So, and he also, it was you know, very clear, you know, certainly from intelligence analysis and reports from the region that the Soviets and Cubans saw Nicaragua as just the first step. They really did have a vision of expanding more and more communist regimes in, in the region. Uh, and so... You know, some differences over viewpoints on Reagan's Latin America strategy jump down to this more fundamental thing. Do you see the communist threat to the region as real and serious or just fabricated and said these were you know, nationalist agrarian scrabbles? I, I think the, the record is very clear that the Kremlin and its and its allies, especially the Cubans, did have a not to say hope, but a, a strategy and were putting a lot of resources into promoting communism in the region. Reagan also so but then Reagan also inherited this problematic framework of uh, up until then, it seemed the only choices in Latin America were either brutal right-wing military dictatorship or communist dictatorship. And you know, for most, you know, for most of his predecessors as president, including Jimmy Carter, the the thought had been, all right, well, we don't like those right-wing military dictatorships, but communist dictatorships are are even worse. And so the United States had mostly supported the right-wing military dictatorships. Reagan worried that if we pulled support from those right-wing military dictatorships, they would go communist. And again, Nicaragua had was the most recent cautionary tale. Reagan and his Secretary of State, George Shultz, develop a third way. This is really important understanding what they are trying to do. They did not want to be trapped in that military dictatorship or communist dictatorship dichotomy. They wanted to support a third way of democracy. And so in the short term, especially 1981-82, they continue supporting those military dictatorships because they don't want them to go communist. But then they start putting in, in place a very deliberate strategy of let's support transitions to democracy among those military dictatorships. And in over eight years, it, it works pretty well. Now, again, there's other structural forces in play. A lot of this gives credit to the, the peoples of the different Latin American countries. But um, Excuse me. Over the next eight years, you see democratic transitions in, in El Salvador, in Brazil, in Chile, in Argentina, in Paraguay, and, and, and others. And you do not see the growth of any more com communist regimes. So it, it's messy. It takes moral compromises. There are a number of, you know, you know mistaken, mistaken policies along the way. But just, you know, criticizing in hindsight in the short term that the Reagan administration supported some brutal military dictatorships in Latin America, I think misses both the severity of the communist threat and the the bigger successes, you know, the, the, the pressure they put on American-supported regimes to support human rights, to democratize, was very real and very consistent and, and paid significant fruits when you look at when you look at the totality of the record over the eight years.
Um, in the book, you, you talk about um, among the way of understanding understanding Reagan's goals with respect to the Soviet Union and, and global communism was kind of negotiated surrender. Um, that that was an end he was pushing towards. And obviously Gorbachev becomes, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Gorbachev didn't think of it this way, certainly early on, but he becomes yeah. a partner yeah. in this. Talk about, you know, the, the role of Gorbachev in what what becomes Reagan and America's success in, in the Reagan-Gorbachev relationship. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important and, and fascinating story. And I will say, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of the title, the book is The Peacemaker. And I get that largely from Gorbachev. Like, so Gorbachev, you know, Reagan's funeral pays tribute to him as, as the peacemaker. He says he, he decided to become a peacemaker. And so that's, I think that's, that's, that's important to understand how, how Gorbachev himself, himself saw Reagan. So back to exploring their relationship a little bit more. As I mentioned in passing, but want to drill, drill down on, the big part of Reagan's strategy of pressuring the Soviet Union, which he starts in 1981, is not just pressuring it to exploit its weaknesses and its vulnerabilities, it's pressuring it to produce a reformist leader. And he and his NS National Security Council staff, especially Dick Pipes, the great Sovietologist from Harvard, serving as MSC staff, are very clear about this, that one prong of their strategy is putting this pressure on the Soviet system to strengthen reformist voices and produce a reformist leader. This is because Reagan all along wanted to have a Soviet leader he could negotiate with. You know, the, the, the diplomacy, the outreach part of the of his strategy, he needs, he needs a partner there. And so this is why Reagan is not so surprised as a lot of others when Reagan, when Gorbachev finally comes to power in March of 85 and Reagan recognizes early on, this guy might be the reformist leader I've been looking for. That's why that chapter in my book is called Waiting for Gorbachev. He had been waiting for, waiting for a Gorbachev. Um, and and so you know this is why they're they're for for summit meetings Geneva in eighty five Reykjavik in eighty six you know Washington in eighty seven Moscow in eighty eight are are such an important part of the book and the story they really do forge a a close personal friendship you know there's deep affection and care between the two you know, I've read every word of the now declassified transcripts of their meetings and it's really really interesting but Reagan is able to forge this friendship and trust with his Soviet counterpart this leader while still being unrelenting in the pressure. And, and Gorbachev is aware of this, and it drives Gorbachev crazy. And so when I talk about this friendship and affection between the two, it is in the context of deep acrimony and, and many you know, very severe co confrontations, because Gorbachev knows that Reagan is trying to uh, bring his system down. You know? And so even though they share an interest in reducing the threat of nuclear war and reducing nuclear arsenals, their interests diverge in that Gorbachev is trying to reform and preserve the Soviet system and Reagan is trying to end it. And so this is why, even as they build a, you know, a close partnership, Reagan increases support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan who are, look, let's, you know, it's, it's a gruesome business. Let's, you know, let's not, let's not disguise this is sending home hundreds of Red Army soldiers in body bags every month, right? I mean, so even as Reagan is building his friendship with Gorbachev, he is killing his, you know, you know, killing as many Soviet soldiers as he can. This is why he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He wants to you know, publicly humiliate and challenge Gorbachev over, over the Berlin Wall. This is why he keeps putting supporting Soviet dissidents who are driving Gorbachev crazy with their with their criticisms of the of the system. This is why Reagan deploys, you know, intermittent range nuclear missiles throughout Europe. And Gorbachev says these things are a gun at our head, they're terrifying us. This is why Reagan is unrelenting and supporting SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which which terrifies Gorbachev. This is why Reagan is putting economic pressure on the Soviet Union, um, partnering with the Saudis to increase oil production, drive down global oil prices, and starve the Soviet Union of one of its only really remaining sources of, of hard currency. Right? You know, echoes again of 
our economic pressure campaign on Putin and Ru- Russia today. So, so Reagan is somehow able. It, it's it's a very you know a deft masterclass, if you will, in, in, in diplomacy to keep this pressure on the Soviet system while working with Gorbachev to avoid the whole thing blowing up in nuclear war and trying to bring them, like I said, to a negotiated negotiated surrender. I just ask a question about this this notion that you associate with pipes of of applying pressure in order to produce a reformist leader. Sort of sort of a double barrel question. One, I, I think the, a more conventional view, if if you want a reformist leader on the other side of the table, which is a longstanding ambition of foreign policymakers with regard to any number of uh, adversarial countries and challenges, wouldn't it make more sense? I feel like the conventional view would be it would make more sense to sort of open one's embrace. And, and, and give sucker and support to, to moderates while avoiding confrontation, allowing the moderates to come to the fore of the, conf- of the, of the, you know, the foreign countries conversation and politics, as opposed to pressure might just, you know, as it were, empower their hardliners. Yeah. And so to, the, the question is, you know, what, what sense does it make to take the other approach, the approach that Reagan took, A, and B, did it actually work in the sense that, is that what produced Gorbachev or, or they, do they just get lucky? Yeah. I'll take the second part first. It's an important point to clarify. You know, as a historian, I I rarely believe in model causal events, right? Okay, so the Politburo selecting Gorbachev as the new, you know, Communist Party General Secretary in March of 1985, there are several influences and forces that go into that. A lot of it is internal to the Soviet system. And so this is not something that only Ronald Reagan engineers from Washington, D.C. I don't want to over- overstate that at all. But I do think that the Politburo was really feeling backed into a corner. They saw that their economy was crumbling. They saw that they were in this unsustainable arms race. They saw that the the Soviet people and the peoples of Eastern Europe were losing faith in, in their system. And yet there's, the Politburo is still desperate to preserve that system, right? They're desperate to preserve their hold on power. They do not want to you know, collapse and transition to democracy. And they also know that a lot of this pressure that they are feeling and being backed into corners be driven by that American president, Ronald Reagan, and, and his new policies. And of course, his allies, Margaret Thatcher, Nakasone in Japan, Helmut Kohl in West Germany, the new Canadian premier at the time, Brian Mulroney. So they, everywhere they look, okay, they look south and they're seeing Soviet soldiers coming home in body bags from this bleeding wound in Afghanistan. They look, they look to the east and they see this dynamic Japanese economy. They see Japan tripling its own defense spending to help bottle up significant Soviet forces in the, in, in the Far East and partnering with the Americans on that. They see that Reagan has forged this partnership also with China, communist China, which is an interesting part of the story. Again, countering Soviet force projection in the Far East. And then they look, they look to their West and they see, you know, the peoples of Eastern Europe become restive. They see Lech Walesa leading this, you know, the, the solidarity movement in Poland. They see that meddlesome Pope stirring up, you know, the Catholic peoples. And then they look elsewhere in the world and they see that they're spending billions of dollars trying to you know, subsidize the Sandinistas in Nicaragua or the, you know, the regime in Angola or elsewhere. And so everywhere they look, they are they're, they're losing. And so they think somehow we've got to hold, preserve our hold on power without letting our system collapse. And so that's why they, they Gorbachev and that he can reform their system while, while still preserving it. So there's many factors that go into his selection. Certainly there's, you know, some luck and good fortune on Reagan's part, but I'm just struck that, um, the documentary record is pretty clear that, you know, four years earlier, Reagan and pipes had been laid out consistently. This is one prong of our strategy to produce that, to pressure the system to produce a reformer. 
they don't they don't think that detente was going to produce a reformer because the soviets had just taken advantage of that you know the, I, we tried the soccer attack for a decade it, it didn't work but this is also why reagan recognizes gorbachev as a reformer earlier than most you know other other experts uh, even even you know thatcher is actually pretty skeptical of gorbachev initially i know she says we can do business with him but she quickly decides ah, i don't trust this guy so much but because Reagan had been looking for a reformer, sometimes if you're looking something for something, you'll recognize it easier when you when you actually actually find it. So Gorbachev deserves you know, quite a bit of credit himself for how things end up favorably. I don't want to say it's all Reagan, but in the balance, I do think Reagan deserves more more credit. I'll, I'll just say that I, I have it on on pretty good authority that the the architects of the Kissinger Nixon foreign policy attributed Reagan's success to essentially luck. I, I I think I know the authority you're you're talking about there. So and and look, I mean, I, I won't go into this at length, but a little teaser for your listeners who I hope will will buy buy and read the book. The Reagan Nixon relationship is fascinating because even though they were fierce rivals in the in the sixties and seventies, once Reagan becomes president, he's consulting pretty regularly with Nixon and with Kissinger. Right, he's getting their inputs on Soviet policy on, on Latin America. Reagan has enough confidence that he's very willing to you know embrace some of his former political adversaries and differences. But once Reagan starts really moving faster in partnering with Gorbachev for doing the INF Treaty, for reducing tensions in the Cold War, Nixon and Kissinger and Brett Schoolcraft and others are very critical of him. They think that he is taking, taking, taking this too far. And that, that is quite annoying to Reagan that he felt like he earlier had to, you know, an understanding with these guys that they wouldn't take shots at him while he's in office. After Reagan says, tear down this wall, Kissinger goes on you know, ABC News the next day and dismisses, you know, scoffs and says that that's never going to happen. So, yeah. Talk a bit about Reagan's personal style, if you if you would. I mean, you, we, we've been talking for a good chunk of time now about his his convictions and his willingness to prosecute those convictions at a grand scale with great vigor and confidence. As a manager, maybe uh, left something to be desired. You, you quote in the book this amazing um, witticism of his that, you know, in this White House, sometimes our our right hand doesn't know what our far right hand is doing. It's great. It's great Reagan line. But to, yeah. to, what was it? What was it like to serve in the Reagan administration at the senior level? Yeah. So this is where a lot of the interviews I did with former senior senior Reagan staff members and cabinet members were were especially revealing. And and a few things things come out. The first is there was across the board great affection for Reagan by so many who served for him because he was just a really decent human being. Right. I mean, the guy did not have, you know, he was not consumed with malice or resentments. He was very comfortable with himself. He was, you know, generally had a very genial, sunny disposition. Of course, he loved to tell jokes, didn't take himself too seriously. He was a was a you know, generally a very kind person. Right. And so there's great affection for him. But there is also incredible frustration with him from so many who worked for him. Because he was just such a neglectful manager and he was very conflict averse. And so when his staff was feuding or leaking against each other or bickering over policies or bickering over, you know, personnel or, or egos or any number of the things that beset every presidency, um, it became very acrimonious. And Reagan would pretty consistently refuse to intervene, refuse to, you know, come in and say, all right, I want, you know, knock it off. I'm going to knock some heads together here. We're all going to get along. He was very averse to firing anybody and would just often let the, these resentments and this shooting fester. And um, it was it was very aggravating and taxing to the people who were working for him. And sometimes it could come at, you know, at real policy costs too. I mean, one way of understanding the, the Iran-Contra scandal, you know, that, that bizarre episode of selling, you know, trading arms to the Iranians for hostage releases and then diverting the, the funds to supporting the Contras. And that's a very complicated story there. But just, I bring it up. One way of understanding that is 
Reagan's poor management. I mean, he just was not paying attention to what different people underneath him were, were, were doing. And that gave, you know, autonomy for some rogue elements to do some, some really foolish, foolish mischief. So, you know, there's, that's one of the puzzles of the Reagan administration is how did he achieve such tremendous strategic success and amidst so much organizational dysfunction. And I think part of it is, you know, part of the key is on the things that he really did care about, especially, you know, Cold War strategy and, and the Soviet Union. He, he had a few key people, National Security Advisor Bill Clark, Secretary of State George, George Schultz, who were effective partners for him and working together with them to implement his strategy was able to o- overcome or at least compensate for a lot of the uh, organizational mismanagement. And not, not to keep drawing comparisons with Nixon, but this this is one, of course, where there's there's a strong parallel where they're really quite alike. They're both you know, very bold leaders at a, at a, at a grand scale even if they have different different you know fundamental principles but at a personal level just deeply averse to confrontation and it's it's an odd it's an odd theme yeah, yeah. in a lot of powerful people yeah yeah it, it really is and this is where to give some credit where credit is due and I, he's a, obviously a very complicated figure but James Baker during the first term when he was Reagan's chief of staff I even though he was more politically moderate than than Reagan Baker was a very capable manager and was pretty loyal to Reagan and committed to helping implement Reagan's vision and managing relations with with Congress. And Baker was, and Reagan had chosen for these purposes, right? I mean, you know, they were not close before. Baker had not supported Reagan during, during the primary, but Reagan wanted to succeed. And he knew that he needed to have a stronger manager there as his, as his deputy, if, if you will. And so Baker, even though he was part of the acrimony, part of some of the leaking, was also a very capable manager and that helped compensate. Whereas once Don Regan became chief of staff in the second term, he was he was less so, and that's when you know things like Iran Iran Contra happened. So, I, I want to ask you about the 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 relevance of of Reagan's foreign policy today and its and its legacy. And there's a couple different ways we could come at that. There's an obvious sort of strategic one. You know, what can we tease out in terms of competition with China and so forth? But I'm I'm actually I'm quite interested in his legacy specifically for conservatives and and for for the conservative debate about foreign policy. Because the, the way that you, you know, you outline the argument, there's, there's, as, as you are, you are aware, there's a, an element of the debate on the right right now about foreign policy that in certain respects harkens back to Nixon, but it's more radical. You know, it's, it's a, it's a vision of, first of all, it's a vision of the conduct of foreign policy that radically deemphasizes ideology. Mm-hmm. And then tied to that, not, not, not amongst everyone who makes that argument, I want to be fair, but among some who make that argument is a, is a, a kind of doubt about the American project, right? That, that to, to, to to promote ideology as a central feature of the conduct of foreign policy sort of implies it certainly didn't practice for Reagan a confidence in the American project, kind of confidence in, in liberalism broad, broadly understood, you know, Western liberalism. I, I I take it from what you've said in our interview today and what you write in the book that you you think Reagan, you know, in a way kind of had it right. But there are there are those today on the right who would, you know, frankly say Reagan's hardly a conservative. He's a liberal. And so conservatives ought to be at the at, at, at very least skeptical, if not hostile, to conducting themselves in the way that he did. So uh, I guess I'll just I'll just ask you to to respond to that. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I'll try to try to keep them keep them brief here. I mean, and the first disclaimer is, you know, at least some of Reagan's successes do need to be understood in the context of he was elected at the right time and the right moment, you know, 1981 as a as a product of, of the 1980s. And so and he's He's sui generis, right? I mean, there, he's, a, he's a very, very unique figure there. So when I talk about the relevance of some of his principles or ideas for today, which I, which I will in a, in a moment, 
you know, obviously you have to put that disclaimer now that there's not a perfect analog. There's not another Reagan today. And obviously there's ongoing debates about what is conservative foreign policy. You know, you and I are both participants in some of those debates and obviously have our, our own thoughts. But I think some of the keys to understanding Reagan's foreign policy successes do stem from these these core convictions. And I th do think we rightly understand him as one of the lodestars or pillars on what I think both principled and successful foreign conservative foreign policy principles are, you know. First, it does start with a deep commitment to American exceptionalism, to the uniqueness of the American idea and the American system. And yet, an understanding and appreciation that some of those values, you know, the United States stands for, limited government, human, human freedom, human dignity, open trading order, are also of benefit to the world and are the aspirations of a lot of other people around the world. And that's why he was, you know, pretty consistent in principle and his support for human rights and democracy and, and religious freedom. So that, that's the first one. The, the second one is a deep commitment to American leadership in the world and American alliances. And this is where, again, he's very much a product of the 1930s and 1940s. He regularly references this during his, his time in office of seeing that the isolationism and protectionism of the 1930s were bad for America and bad for the world. He had grown up under that, right? And he saw that lead, you know, he thought very directly to continue the Great Depression and then, of course, into the rise of total Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and World, world War II. And, and so for him, that was not just a blip in 20th century history. That was a, a permanent warning about dangers that could return if the United States was not active in leading the world and staying strong and free and in working with our allies on that. And again, he's, he's I think, you know, the American president in history is still most committed to allies, seeing them as a unique source of American strength. And yeah, don't get him started on what a pain of the rear allies can be, right? I mean, some of his biggest frustrations and vexations come from allies too. So this is not not by any means being being, being naive about that. And then this 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 vision of pairing uh, military strength and power with diplomatic potency and purpose. Again, you know, we could do a whole nother episode just on Reagan's military buildup and modernization alone. It's much more sophisticated. People realize that it's not just let's throw a lot more money at the Pentagon and upbuild the, the Kremlin. You know, for the defense wonks listening, you know, he's building on the second offset and, you know, Andy Marshall's competitive strategies framework to do a next generation of weapon systems that have leverage American technology for asymmetric, you know, cost imposing advantages over, over, the, over the Soviets. The key there is he wanted to outsmart the Soviets as well as out, outbuild them, right? And put them, lure them into an arms race where no matter how many more rubles they threw at things, they, 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 they wouldn't be able to win. I don't go into that as I digress. I think there's some permanent principles there about the importance of military power and military force and strengthening American diplomacy. And yet, very important, Reagan is also deeply scarred by the Vietnam experience and is very careful about actually deploying ground troops, right? I mean, so in his eight years as president, he deploys ground, ground troops in combat once in Grenada. They're also, and I know I'm talking to a, a Marine here with you, there also, of course, is the ill-fated Marine peacekeeper mission in Beirut. But that's almost the exception that proves the rule. They weren't there in combat. Reagan, you know, Reagan really mismanaged that. You know, it was, it was a very sorry episode, but he almost deviated from some of his own, own principles there. Again, contrasted with Bush 41, who we're talking about, who, you know, I also think hell, but in, in half the time, in only four years as president, he does two large scale ground combat operations, you know, just cause in Panama and that's worse than Gulf War. And so I think Reagan, there's a, there's actually a principle there on being more cautious and prudent about deploying military force while still being assertive about using it for, you know, to win without fighting, if, if, if you will. So I think a lot of those principles are still 
very relevant for, for today. One final thing, he showed great political courage with these, right? I mean, he was a committed free and open trader during a time when domestic, bipartisan domestic sentiment was even much more protectionist than it is now. But he just believed as a matter of principle, as a matter of what's best for the American economy, of what's best for our allies in being committed to open trade and resisting protectionism. That was not a political winner for him. He did it out of conviction, out of what he thought was best for the country. He was, and over time, I think he was, he was proved, proven right on that. But he also showed political courage and sometimes taking on some voices from the right who thought that he was going too far in his negotiations with Gorbachev or in trying to reduce the threat of nu nuclear war. And so, you know, I think political courage obviously needs to be married with, with conservative principle here. And I think he's a, he's a great, great model fusing both. Willem Bowden, author of The Peacemaker. Thank you so much for making the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. I really enjoyed it. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.